I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined. From the moment we're born until we die, one of our most fundamental needs is the way we bond with each other. Attachment is just a very fundamental human need, just as much as basic food and water. And our ability to relate to each other impacts not only who we are, but who we'll become. If we feel secure, we don't think about our partner all the time. We think about how are we going to create, what hobbies we're going to have, friendships, parenting, work. And that's the real thing about attachment. It really gives us the freedom to become more independent by finding the right person to depend on. Psychiatrist Amir Levine joins us to discuss his best-selling book, Attached, the new science of adult attachment and how it can help you find and keep love. We'll discuss the three primary attachment styles, secure, anxious, and avoidant, and why these can bring new clarity to the confusing world of romantic relationships. That's all ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. From birth until death, human connections are essential. And for some of us, they are maybe the single most meaningful part of our lives. At birth, our primary relationship is with a parent or a caregiver. And as we grow, those earliest interactions play a part in how we attach to each other. In the 19th century, psychologist John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth were the first to affirm the significance of that early attachment in normal development. Attachment bonds were often based on the child's need for safety, security, and protection, most important in infancy and childhood. Bowlby also observed that the same childhood attachment styles continue to develop through adulthood, with friendships, marriage, and parenthood. And today, anyone looking for a partner or working on their romantic relationship are probably familiar with the three primary categories of attachment, anxious, avoidant, or secure. So can knowing your bonding style influence the way we behave and connect with others? Could it alter the way others perceive us? In his book, Attached, The New Science of Adult Attachment and How It Can Help You Find and Keep Love, co-author Amir Levine talks about the three primary attachment styles and explains that understanding their common strengths and weaknesses can actually lead to more satisfactory and lasting relationships. Amir Levine is associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and head of the Levine Lab for Developmental Neuroscience at Columbia University. Amir Levine, welcome to Life Examined. I'm happy to be here. So attachment theory, I feel like, is everywhere now, right, on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook, and we love to throw around these terms of what it is. But I want to go back in time and get your understanding of the history of attachment theory. I mean, this is something I studied becoming a therapist, but when did uh, attachment theory kind of come into being? What's the story behind it? So the the father of attachment theory is John Bowlby, and he um, really back in the 50s, uh, and then 60s, had this idea, um, and even before that actually, just around, uh, because initially he really gave a lot of thought to these ideas even around World War II, because he was working with kids who were displaced uh, during the Blitz in London, and they sent them up north, and many of these kids, what they noticed, even though they were able to give them food and shelter, but there were so many of them, they really didn't pay much attention to engaging with them. And he noticed that a lot of these very young uh, infants and kids failed to grow properly Mm. and develop. And he then deducted that attachment is just a very fundamental human need, just as much as uh, like basic food and water. And that was not the thought at the time. Mm. At the time, the thought was that attachment is a byproduct of the need of the infant from the mother, that the infant needs water and sustenance. And, and, and as, a, as a result of that, they develop this dependency on its, uh, the infant develops a dependency on their caregiver. Mm, interesting. So there began to be a change in terms of thinking that it's not just food and water, but it's the way in which a caregiver is physically with the child and the relationship between the two. Is that right? Yes, that it's basically... Like the human bond is a necessary uh, element in our thriving, just as much as food and water. And I think it's very, very important uh, for all your listeners to really understand it and comprehend it, because you'll see how this theme, this, this theme that it was really originally Bowlby's ideas, uh, comes uh, back again and again and again. And I think it's easier to see in infants, but it's really 
Balbi thought that it's true throughout, throughout the lifetime of, of an individual, mm. that it's uh, from the moment we're born until we die, that the human condition is such that we need to be bonded to others uh, in a very, very meaningful way. Interesting too, just in, and we'll move the story forward in a second, but that there were physiological changes in these children, like that they weren't growing properly, which showed that something really interesting and, and confusing was happening. Right, the failure to thrive mm. without the human connection. Yes. Yeah. So after Bowlby, where does this research end up going? So then there comes another very important person into this story, and this is Mary Ainsworth. And Mary Ainsworth started, she's a very, very interesting person, and sort of brilliant scientist. She's originally, I think she uh, did a PhD at the University of Toronto, and then she, with her husband, she had to go to Uganda for several years, and that's where she actually first had this idea about this attachment style mm. that uh, she observed infants and their mothers and that there's a different, she really saw that kids uh, relate to their caregivers in uh, different ways. She saw three main different ways, uh, which she thought about as anxious, avoidant, and secure. Um, in our terms, there's the terminology changed a little bit, but the idea of what behind this is that we, these infants related differently to their caregivers. And then when she got back, she went and she worked at, uh, in, in Baltimore in John Hopkins, and she set it up to study that in the lab, and she came up with the strange situation test, mm. which is an amazing experiment that you can still, you can Google it, you can see it on YouTube, it's still done today, where she was able to study in a controlled, semi-controlled situation, um, these finding, this discovery of the attachment style that she had in toddlers. You know, I've seen like the, the, the black and white footage of this on YouTube, and I, it's almost hard to watch a little bit, um, because- Right, I know. It, yeah, yeah, but explain for our listeners that haven't seen it, like what was the study, how did they do it? And it's still done today, by the way. It's an amazing, you know, when people find, have this finding, she was so lucky also, smart and lucky. <laughs> As a scientist, you need both to be, to have your wits about you and also to have luck at your side to sort of discover something that have this face validity, like this construct, psychological construct that has this validity that stays on for generations after that is still done today. It's remarkable. Mm. So the way she set it up was they um, had... Uh, let's say a, a toddler and um, his or her caregiver, or their caregiver, come into a room full of toys, and then there is also the um, the research assistant, which is like one of the most important contributors to science in general is the research assistant, and they were there in a room full of toys, and they were also observed through a one-way mirror um, by others, and typically what you see, and you can watch it on YouTube, it's done until today, is that they walk into the room and that the, the young child immediately gets excited about all the new toys, starts pointing at the new toys. You put them on the ground, they crawl and sort of walk, sort of hobble over, starts playing with different toys. Everything is great. And then at, that, at a certain moment after the child acclimates a little bit, they ask for the caregiver to leave the room. Yeah. And uh, invariably, you see almost always the child kind of like drops what they have in their hand and sort of run over to the door, bang on the door, starts crying, yelling, screaming. Um, the uh, research assistant tries to just like interest them with a the toy. They'll just throw it in their face. Um, and then after a few minutes, that's kind of like the difficult part to watch. They ask the uh, caregiver to come back into the room. And at that moment, the reunion between the child and the caregiver is where Ainsworth noticed three distinct patterns, the anxious, avoidant, and secure. Hmm. And, what she, and it all has to do with how quickly, was the, how effective was the bond in regulating the affect, regulating the emotions of this uh, poor little toddler. Hmm. <laughs> um, so the secure baby the secure attachment, I would say, because it's about the, the relationship, right? They, uh, like, it was the effect of them, the, the caregiver was immediate. They're able to calm them down very quickly. And within seconds, you see them, like minutes, you see them starting pointing at the toys again and getting interested in, in, in playing again. The anxious, not so much. It took a lot longer for them to calm down. Sometimes they would calm down 
but then all of a sudden we remember the horrible thing that happened to them and starts crying again. It's called sort of the calm, uncalm paradigm. Mm. But in the, invariably it will take them much longer to get interested in the toys around them. The avoidant, a, a little bit of a different scenario. They would sometimes even not start crying. They would sort of stay and kind of like continue playing as if nothing happened. Or they would cry, and when the mother would pick them up, they would stay limp in her, like in her arm. They wouldn't really respond so much to the mother. Uh, and sometimes they seem, oh, they're, they're, they don't really care. But if you check their blood pressure and heart rate, you see that it's through the roof. Mm. So they're kind of like, uh, so, but it shows you that even there, they didn't know how to utilize the bond really well to help themselves calm down. Uh, they found other ways maybe to suppress it, but they, they, it's not like they didn't have the ability to effectively use the bond to calm themselves down and get interested again in, in, in play. So these are the three attachment styles that Mary Ainsworth found. Hmm. So what did then researchers um, like Mary Ainsworth and eventually yourself begin to deduce from this research? Where did it go after this? Right. Another turning point came in 1987 where Cindy uh, Hazen and Philip Shaver published a seminal paper. Uh, and in that paper, before they published it, they, hated, they had this idea that... Um, and it's something that Bowlby always said. You remember I told you in the beginning when I told you about Bowlby that Bowlby said that attachment is something that lasts from the moment we're born until the, the last of our breath. And they thought that maybe also in adulthood, people use the similar patterns of these attachment styles to behave with other significant others in close relationships. And they set out to study it. It's a little bit different than in children because... We don't play with games anymore, but it has more to do with our attitude towards intimacy and closeness and uh, how much we like closeness, how much, but also that's one uh, area. And then the other area is how upset are we going to get if we think that there's a potential threat to the availability of the other person, because that's all what attachment is about. It's like the knowing that the other person is available. So the secure person loves intimacy and closeness, but they don't worry that much about, about their partner's whereabouts, if they're going to love them, they're not going to love them. They're secure with their love. They know that their partner is there, and they think they're going to love them for a very long time. Mm. The anxious, they love the intimacy and closeness, but very worried about, like, about being loved and that their partners potentially would stop loving them. And the avoidant, they don't feel that much that comfortable with too much intimacy and closeness. And I like to say they like to throw sticks in the wheels of closeness. Hmm. They, uh, they deactivate, there's a specific lingo, and they deactivate and by doing that, they keep distance in the relationship. So that's, yeah. they, they, for, it's very impor important for them to be independent. Yeah. And in just a minute, I, I want to spend more time going through these styles, but when these researchers were trying to make sense of the attachment styles in children, was there a thought that one develops an attachment style because of the environment? I mean, specifically the relationship between the caregiver and the child. So it's, it's it totally just picked up via that relationship versus other factors in the world. And maybe we could even talk about whether or not there's a genetic component. But I suppose, like, how did they make sense of how these styles developed? So I think at the time when um, Hazen and Shaver did their initial research, you know, when you're a researcher, you have to be very, especially because they're not, they're not developmental um, psychologists. They were social psychologists. Yeah. They were just interested in creating a structure or like a, a potential social structure in adulthood and see whether it makes any sense and whether they could also use that as, a, as these a, a, attachment styles in adulthood to predict. They wanted to see if they can use the, the attachment styles in adulthood to predict relationship satisfaction. Mm. So I don't think they gave a lot of thought. I think they did think that potentially the attachment style that you have in childhood would translate also into adulthood. That might have been what they thought. But they, were, they didn't set out to study that. That's much harder to study because you need to follow over time people and see if there's a correlation. They first wanted to see, that's how it is, like in science, you, you, 
you, you study what you can and what's the easiest thing to study, and it was much easier to see whether these constructs can also be used in adulthood to measure your how well would you function in a relationship. And that's mm. what they set out to do, and they found that indeed these constructs are very useful in adulthood to uh, examine close relationships, and they also fell similarly within the same ballpark of the numbers or the percentage of attachment styles is in children. Hmm. Like about 55% were secure, about 25% were avoidant, both in children and adult, and about 20% were anxious. Hmm. Interesting. So even still today, um, is it difficult to understand you know, what the genesis is of these different styles? Yes, entirely. And actually, there, that paper in 1987 really started this whole field of adult attachment. Mm. And since there, there have been hundreds of papers. And there has been, um, they have tried to look at prospective studies and look at the development of attachment styles. And the finding is actually that there's, if anything, there's a weak correlation between um, children attachment style and adult attachment style. And I personally find that as something very promising because it means that we're very malleable socially and our social brain can really evolve and change. Um, and to me, that's very good news because it means that we're not, things are not set in stone hmm. and we can become more secure uh, if we sort of work at it or try to find a way. But there's definitely, there's many people who were um, anxious in childhood, but we're secure in adulthood, but also mm. vice versa. So we don't have a complete answer for that yet. Right. Because one would imagine the logic is that, and, and, and I feel almost bad for parents that would have to live under the stress, which is that maybe they did something wrong. They didn't touch the child enough or pay enough attention to the child. And that resulted in a, you know, an insecure or avoidant attachment style. Is, is there any truth to that at all? I'm glad that you're saying that because you know, I'm a child psychiatrist in my training. And I think over the years, and especially now, and that's exactly how I'm thinking about it, there's a lot of like blame the parents that was involved in, in psychology. I don't know, there were, I don't know if you're familiar with this whole term of the um, refrigerator mother sort hmm. of thinking that moms that were cold and more aloof uh, caused. Uh, autism in their children, oh. or the schizophrenic mother, the mothers that were uh, hot and cold to their children uh, that caused schizophrenia, whereas nowadays, whereas nowadays we know that these are not true, that both schizophrenia and autism, a lot of it has to do with genetics, yeah. uh, and it's a neurodevelopmental, these are neurodevelopmental illnesses, um, and it has nothing to do with how warm or how cold the mother was to their child. So I think similarly, we now have a much more nuanced view on how complex and complicated is the effect and the interchange, the interchange between environment and genes and uh, different and, and in shaping who we become and right. shaping who we, we are. And not only that, that it's ongoing. Our brain continues to change and get shaped and reshaped in uh, response to the relationships that we have throughout our lifetime. Yeah. And it's interesting just to think about culturally how caregiving has changed, right? Like you think of a 1950s-style parenting was probably a lot colder than what you'd find in 2020 in Southern California or something, right? And that my guess is children that were all born in the 1950s all didn't come out of that with avoidant attachment styles. There was probably a mix or a blend of attachment styles, which would symbolize, just as you say, there's other factors behind that, right? Some genetic interaction with the environment. It, it, we can't just blame it on parenting, I suppose. That, and also we forget that we are probably, I think, the most social species on this planet. Mm. We have such an intricate and complex social interactions, just also by the fact that we have this ability to communicate on such a high level that we form very, very intricate and very complex social structures. So one would think that to really 
I don't, I wouldn't see the advantage of shaping one's complete way of interacting with the world based on one relationship. As seminal it may be, as important as it may be, it doesn't really make sense to me biologically hmm. that humans would sort of stay stuck in that one particular way of relating. And in fact, I think, and actually researchers now think that uh, adolescence and young adulthood is also a critical time in which attachment styles can change. Because that's also a time when the brain is very malleable and changes a lot. And that's the time when we shift our, our attention from the relationships with our parents to our peers. And all of a sudden our peers become so important and our brain is changing. And it may be that during that time, the quality of our relationships then can really also make a huge difference in our attachment style. Yeah, that's really interesting. But maybe, as is the case often with other mental disorders or ones, um, the extent to which they were in some level of a traumatic environment, like in the beginning you talked about Bowlby and how there were these children that just clearly didn't get enough care. So this would be an extreme situation, right? That there would be certain really big causes that might result in an attachment style. I mean, is that even safe to say that, you know, when it comes to trauma that it could influence attachment? So I would say, I think that to, to a certain extent, yes, but not entirely. Mm. There is, uh, and that's where the fourth attachment style comes in, that also in children, Mary Main found the disorganized attachment style. Oh. And there is like another, but it's much more, it's not as prevalent, the fearful avoidant in adulthood, where they have both the avoidant and the anxiety. And that I think is more associated with exposure to trauma, but not always. Again, it's not, none of these things are set in stones. I wish, I wish our biology were more simple yeah. for us to understand, but, but, but you know, I'm, I'm a basic scientist. I do uh, molecular neuroscience research. And even like in simpler animals, even in animals like Aplesia, which is a sea slug, like you could see the complexity and how hard it is to find patterns, yeah. biological patterns, because biology is very complex. But I think there definitely could be some influence of trauma pushing towards more disorganized attachment styles, but not only. And many people who, who were traumatized can actually have secure attachment styles. And the other important thing is to say, and that's part of the reason that I really love this field so much, because in my training, I'm, I'm a psychiatrist. But this field, it didn't come from the, um, the medical model. This is all... Uh, this is from social psychology, developmental psychology. So these attachment styles are not pathological. Mm. They're all a variation of a norm. And there's an advantage to having, because you can't really think that 25% of the population are pathological or 20%. And these are all variations of the norm. And in certain scenarios, there's an advantage to having an anxious attachment style. Yes. There's an advantage to having... Um, uh, uh, an avoided attachment style. In the book, you also talk about how each of these different attachment styles has evolutionary advantages, that in fact, there might be a reason that somebody could be avoidant or anxious and how that might have been to the advantage in the history of humans. Can you share a little bit about that? Right, so the idea with evolution is that it's uh, advantageous for, to have heterogeneity within the population. So if uh, the environment changes, we're not going to be caught by surprise. And we can see how there's going to be an advantage for a certain segment of the population to have a very high sensitivity to potential danger. There would be the, the canaries of, of the species. And I think about the anxious attachment is the canaries of humans because they're very, very good in detecting danger. And there's all these different studies that show there's one study that had like smoke come out of uh, a computer um, and they're the first who detected the smoke and alerted people for danger or that they also are very very good to tell if people are bluffing in poker mm. so they have a heightened sensitivity to potential danger and I think for example in COVID I've, I've had some anxiously attached patients, and they're very, very good in uh, detecting the potential danger coming. I had like one father who insisted on wearing a mask before anyone even thought about wearing a mask. 
and it actually caused some problems in his children's school, but he insisted, and then he even at some point stopped sending his kids to school, and some of the, and then a week later, some of the parents in, in the classroom, from the kids in the classroom got sick with COVID, and one actually ended up on a respirator. So you can see how having like a sixth sense for danger can be really uh, advantageous in, in, in times of danger. Mm. So that's one example. The other, with the one with the avoidant, avoidants are very, very good in functioning on their own. Like even from that strange situation test, if the mother is gone, or if she's there, I will continue on. I will continue on at any cost, no matter what. And it also translates to adulthood. Like they can work really well on their own. Uh, they, like in times when there's potentially other people will leave and go, they don't falter. They'll just like with a steady hand, uh, continue on. They put a lot of, it's almost like they're getting ready for that day that uh, people will um, disappear on them. And they constantly are telling themselves that they have to count only on themselves and they have to be self-sufficient, waiting for that shoe to drop. So that's, but you can see that it could be advantage because when the shoot does drop, they're there and they're ready for it. Yeah. And then for a secure attachment, I, I'd imagine that, that, you know, humans being so social and in a sense, we, that's a major theory of how we understand how humans have advanced that being securely attached would be helpful in that case, right? Oh yeah. So I have to tell you that in writing secure, in writing attached and then in the, the years that followed, I completely fell in love with the securers of this world because mm. these are just people who are naturally really, really good in relationships. And if you surround yourself with secure people, they will teach you how to become more secure. And they're just very, the, the crux of the matter is, and I love going back to that strange situation test, it's like how good are they in regulating, uh, in, uh, regulating other people's affect and regulating their own affect using others. They're just very, very good in using others to both regulate their own feelings and help others regulate their feelings. So let's say they had like a really bad, they got upset about something at work. They're very good in calling someone that they know. We know we all have this attachment hierarchy in our head. And if something bad happened to us, we kind of know who's the first person we're going to turn to, who's the second, who's the third. For different people, we may turn to different things, but usually we have a very good idea who these people are. I'm sure you have a good idea. If now you're thinking about it, you can sort of immediately think about who you would turn to. And if they're secure, they can make us feel better within seconds. I always like to say there's no Xanax or Clonopin in the world that can work as effectively as a secure bond. Hmm. So secures are amazing. <laughs> My guest this hour is Amir Levine, co-author of the book, Attached. We'll be back with part two of our conversation after this short break. This is Life Examined. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. My guest this hour is Amir Levine, psychiatrist and neuroscientist at Columbia University and co-author of Attached, the new science of adult attachment and how it can help you find and keep love. In the first half of our conversation, Levine talked about how an attachment style forged in early developmental childhood can effectively act like a forecast for a satisfactory relationship in adulthood. Now we'll jump into what it means to have an anxious, avoidant, and secure attachment style. Well, let's let's spend some more time then looking at these three different attachment styles, and, and I think most importantly now, thinking about how they present in adulthood, because that's really what your book did such an incredible job of. Um, so before we get to secures, because who, who wouldn't want to be a secure, me included, um, let's start with the anxious attachment style. In fact, you said in the book that those that have anxious attachments almost have the most game from reading your book. So if you could like paint a profile of how someone acts with an anxious attachment as an adult in a romantic relationship. Right, that's a great question. I, I, I like to think about it as the whole, the whole premise of attachment 
is, I think it's best to explain it that way so, so that people can understand. It's really how we feel safe in the world. It's, it's a safety mechanism. We think about relationships, but really, this is how we feel safe in the world. People think if they had a lot of money, if they were famous, then they, they, they'd feel safe. But that's not how people feel safe because our, our emotional brain was constructed in a time where all these things didn't exist. These are relatively new things in evolution. There, so all these belongings, all these things didn't exist. So how, did we, how do we feel safe, especially for an animal in the middle of the food chain? We feel safe by our, connect, by our connections to others. So we have a radar for safety, and we all have it, no matter if we're like what attachment style we have, we all have this radar that knows where our loved ones are, and it's constantly working in the back of our head. And if I were to tell you now, and we know where they are, and we know that they're sort of safe now, but if I were to tell you that where your loved one is, there's like been a terrible, um, I don't know, hurricane or yeah. a terrorist attack, you would have a hard time continuing with this interview. You'd probably have to stop and uh, just ch check to make sure that they're okay, and then you'll be able to resume uh, the interview. Even so, you'll be still very unsettled, but you'd be able to try to concentrate more about what's going on here. So that's just an example. No matter what attachment style uh, we have that, people would have, who have an anxious attachment style have a more sensitive radar. They can detect danger much more easily. And danger in attachment is something very specific. It's the availability of the other person. And if they feel that the other person is less available, they uh, get activated, the attachment neurocircuitry gets activated, which is almost like, it's like the alarm system goes off. It's like, whoa, danger, danger, danger. And so then they will engage in what we call protest behavior, which is any behavior that will reestablish the availability of the other person. It's easy to see in children, it's like a child is in the supermarket, all of a sudden the mother is gone. It's like, oh my God, Danger, danger, danger. They start crying, screaming, and then uh, when their mother, when they see their mother again, they can calm down. So it's very effective mm. in getting um, the safety back of like. So, but again, same neurocircuitry, right? Balby said, from birth until death, we have the same need. So even in adulthood, if the person that we are very close to, that we're attached to, is not available to us, it will elicit a danger response. And so people who are, have an anxious working model, which is another way of saying attachment style, also have a very sensitive radar and they feel that the relationship can be, um, is, is at peril often, or very often, that the other person may stop loving them, that someone may steal the other person from them. A lot of things that can potentially sort of come in the way of the relationship and they're constantly uh, activated and in surveillance of what's going on and making sure that the other person is available to them. Mm. And so I love thinking about what protest behavior could be like in the modern era of phones. And I got this from your book. It could be like sending 35 texts. Where are you? Why aren't you responding? What's going on? Calling all the time. And uh, you also talk about people with an anxious attachment style. They're constantly like thinking about the relationship, wondering about it, analyzing the relationship, right? Those are all very common traits. Yes, yes. So let's say people are trying all, like not to text so much, not to call so much, no. but they're still activated. So how do they maintain proximity to this person? By thinking about them a lot, by being oh. preoccupied with them a lot. That's our way of maintaining Proximity, even if we're not like, and it's like we're. It's very important for us. It doesn't feel safe for us if if this other person is not around. And I think what's really important to understand, you know, I had this epiphany a few years ago when I went in a safari in Africa, and they had us. One day we walked outside uh, in the in the. Um, we we weren't in the car. We went uh, by by foot. We just walked outside, and they told us to walk. In a single file, there was a person with uh, a rifle in the front and there was a person with a rifle in the back and we had to walk uh, very close to one another and never open a gap. And all of a sudden, I understood these attachment styles much better. Mm. This is what they were supposed to do to make sure that the, avail the availability, it was not something like, oh, it's nice if they'll call me back, it's nice if they'll text me back. It's not about that. It's about if there's going to be too big of a gap between me and the person in front of me, 
and all of a sudden one of us can become someone's lunch or dinner. You see, so mm. it, it's this, the brain was constructed and the safety is more about those, um, that kind of life than the life that we have today. Right. Yes, of course. I mean, now we just kind of superimpose that into the world we live in because we're still that person that would have been out on the savannah. And I also find it really interesting when you talk about the anxious attachment style, the just how difficult it is when there's a major breakup or a divorce. Like, and this is something I, you know, I I would recognize as somebody who has partially that style, which is that it feels as if the world is literally ending. Like you're in grave danger, really high rates of anxiety, sleeplessness, um, catastrophic thinking, like, oh, I'll never find love again, and almost idealizing the lost partner. Those are all things you've written about that I think are pretty spot on. Right. So these are all um, activating strategies. It's like your brain convinces you that in all sorts of different ways, it's amazing how it kind of like takes over your analytical abilities and it convinces you, uh, it tries to convince you in any possible way to um, establish uh, the availability of the other person Mm. and not to let them go because being alone is so dangerous. So yes, you're right. All of these different and something, and it's incredibly painful. Sometimes people really say they feel like an arm has been severed. Um, it just feels so, so painful. The body does everything, the mind does everything possible to reestablish that uh, connection. Mm, interesting. So let's then jump to the avoidant attachment style. Again, in adulthood, in romantic relationships, in the seeking of a partner, the maintaining, give me a profile of how an avoidant might act. So avoidance, there's just like they try, they say, there, I think the way that I like to think about their motto is like, why even try? Huh. <laughs> it's like, you better just like trust yourself and no one else. If you'll try and if you'll get close to someone, they're going to fail you. So you better be self-reliant and you better just count on yourself. It's almost like that's how. And also, I think beyond that, that's just one way of looking at it. There's also like just inherent discomfort with too much closeness mm. and um and that we see in biology and other species as well it really it's um, throughout evolution there's always been uh, in many many different species there's a segment of the population that um doesn't feel comfortable with that much closeness i don't know if you have any pets but you can see it even in, in cats and in dogs <laughs> We just did a show on cats, and I literally just thought, this sounds like a cat to me, but go ahead. That's really funny. But, yeah. but even within cats, some people say, oh, this cat is like a dog. Mm. They love being close. They kind of like come to me all the time. They, they won't leave me alone. He's like a dog. And some people say about their dogs, they behave like cats. Yeah. But you can see even with dogs, some dogs will have their face in your face. You can see it on TikTok. I'm mesmerized by uh, TikTok. Uh, yeah. Um, like of, of animals, even parrots. You can see it all the time. Some of them love the closeness and they're very, very needy, quote-unquote needy, and some like their distance. Like, for example, my dog, he, doesn't li- he wouldn't like it if you put your face in his face. Mm. He always sits with his, like, he'll oftentimes not even sort of jump on the bed with you. He'll be by your side. And when he will sit, he will be facing outward, not too close to you. Yeah. It just doesn't feel that, that comfortable with that much closeness. Other dogs will be right on you all the time. Mm. So there is this inherent uh, uh, feeling of how much you feel comfortable with closeness. So that's one aspect of it. And the other aspect of it is just like then an additional thing of telling yourself that you should be completely self-reliant. But that also translates to others should be also self-reliant. <laughs> Like, why should I, you know, you remember I told you how good secure people are in helping others uh, dispel difficult emotions. Yeah. But you know, to the avoidance, it's like, what do you want from me? Mm. You deal with your own emotions. I'm dealing with mine. Well, you should deal with yours. They, for them, it, they don't understand, like, this whole idea of uh, that together you can help regulate each other's feelings. They That's don't right. like that. They don't understand it. It's foreign to them. It's not something that they know how to do well, um, so, and they don't really ask it of others. Yeah, 
One telltale sign you talked about when, you know, two people are in a dating process and you're wondering if I've met somebody who is avoidant is they might be very unclear about the extent that they want to be close or far away. They might say, oh, I really want to be in a relationship and then kind of push the person away, a little bit of a push-pull action, or, or they'll yes. get close and then suddenly be like, oh, no, I, I actually, I, I didn't mean that. Or maybe sometimes an avoidance of a lot of physical touch. There was another interesting one you mentioned that sometimes they'll actually want to walk ahead of their other partner by a few steps. Those were a few of the ones that jumped out at me. <laughs> I know. I love that example because it's just, it was such a challenge trying to translate these research entities into a tool that people can use in everyday life because none of these descriptions were there. So Rachel, my co-author Rachel and I had to think about how does avoidant look? What are these, the, it's called deactivating strategies, uh, which is the opposite of the activating strategies we described before, like oh, thinking about where they are, what are they doing? Deactivating strategies, it's exactly the opposite. So minimizing closeness. So we really went and looked at all of our friends and thought about their behaviors. And one of them, a friend of ours, was going, it was, uh, going on a vacation. It was supposed to be this romantic vacation. In her, in her mind, she was going to walk hand in hand with her boyfriend and going to have such a romantic time. But when, I think they went to Paris. And when they got there, she found that all the time he was walking ahead of her, walking, walking ahead of hmm. her, and she would yell, can you stop and wait for me? And he would stop, but then he would start again, and she found it very, very frustrating. So we inserted all of these different behaviors into the book, and we were surprised how much it resonated with people and how, how universal some of these behaviors are because this book has been translated to 20 different languages, more now almost 30 languages, and yet... Uh, these behaviors are just so common, no matter where you are, and that it's really, it, we found, we didn't expect it to be that way, and we found it quite astounding. Yeah. So one thing I really want to get to, because this is really important for those that are in relationships or seeking relationships, which is that you found that perhaps the most, I don't know if dangerous is too heavy a word, but maybe unhealthy or difficult set of relationships or dyad is between the anxious and the avoidant. They often actually, it seems, seek each other out, but what can happen can be really, really difficult to deal with or to progress from. Can you talk Very about painful. why? Can you talk yeah. about why those two styles are almost, you know, like oil and water? What happens there? Right. So that's a great question. So the question is not so much, is it healthy or not healthy, but how effective is it? Yeah. Is it working for you or not working for you? So the dyad between the sort of combination of the anxious and the avoidant is, can be very problematic. And because if you remember, and if I said that people who are anxious love a lot of intimacy and closeness and crave it, but also have a very sensitive radar for potential threat in their relationship, which is the lack of availability of the other person. And the avoidants are almost like the polar opposites. They don't like too much intimacy and closeness, and they insert by deactivation, like walking in front of you, minimizing things, not, not having enough physical touch, they insert um, potential threat into the relationship all the time. So you're taking those who are most sensitive to it, who want closeness, who are all, also feel very insecure about it, and it's like really uh, pouring um, sort of kerosene onto fire. Yeah, <laughs> it's really yeah. not, not a good combination. And unless you deal with it, and either you'll be surprised how many actually people were able to effectively deal with it by just reading the book and finding ways to manage and become more secure and uh, by being there for each other more. Yeah. Uh, but if you can't do that, that can lead to a lot of unhappiness in a relationship. Um, and this is maybe pushing us more in, in, in you know, Freudian territory, but I think it's really interesting to think about why would an avoidant be attached to somebody who's anxious and an anxious style be attached to an avoidant as if they almost are seeking each other out in a way? Like, how, why would that make sense? I think it's not that they seek each other out so much, but I think that uh, a lot of the time who we meet has to do with a lot of it, it has to do with, ch with chance. But I think they really, what they do do is they reaffirm your uh, old beliefs about what relationships are about. Yeah. So if you have this belief that I shouldn't count on anyone, people will try to um, get, get in the way of my independence and self-sufficiency. So when you meet someone who's anxious, 
and they're like, what's happening here? I need your reassurance. I need your reassurance. Then, oh, wow, this person reaffirms my beliefs. So it's easier for you to kind of like go with it um, and vice versa with people who are anxious. It's like, oh, my God, I'm not going to be loved enough. When whoever I'm going to meet are going to sort of try to um, insert distance and eventually they're going to leave me. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. And indeed, the shoe does drop. And so they reaffirm each other's uh, worst beliefs. Yeah. Um, and what I find when I work with, uh, with patients and clients is that what I find is that when they meet someone secure, sometimes they don't know how to even deal with it. Yeah. It's like something so foreign to them and so unexpected that sometimes it scares them and they, or sometimes they feel uncomfortable in it and they kind of like um, try to walk away from it. There's a lot of different reasons why people who have insecure attachment sometimes have a hard time uh, being with secure people, but not always. And sometimes if there's enough attraction and there's different reasons and the, so the, the, the situation is right, uh, people will um, fall in love and be, uh, or even just not falling in love. You know, it's not just in romantic situations. They can become friends or they can meet a boss at work and that will be secure. And that is transformative. Yeah. That really has a chance to really transform their lives into something else because all of a sudden they are faced with something unexpected, something new. And it's so interesting. You know, I've seen this in my own life or with clients that, that may have avoidant or anxious styles, which is that sometimes they'll meet someone who's secure and be like, oh, this is kind of boring, right? Like, right. I, I'm used to the kind of major swings of love. And oftentimes, because I think what a lot of people that have anxious styles want is they they live in anxiety, but then they get that like morsel of security. And it's like a drug almost like, oh, finally, I got it. And it's that toggling between the two. So therefore, the, the secure becomes like, oh, wow, this is, what is this? This is so easy and boring. Like, I'm not even interested. But I think that your book does an amazing job of saying that like, in fact, for those that are avoidant and anxious, they need to kind of start leaning in to those that are secure and kind of learning to be with that type of energy as a way to create healthy relationship styles. For sure. So one of my, the things that I was mostly thinking about in my private practice, in my research, in my readings, is how to help people become more secure. Yeah. And so what I've come to call this, what you're describing, uh, I call it the Delta effect. And Delta like in, in science means the change. Um, and so the difference, because biological systems really mostly responds when you measure the change in biological systems. You measure the delta and uh, the whole delta. So let's say if we go from minus 50 to 50, the delta is 100. And so that's that we would respond to the change, which is 100. But if you go from zero to 50, the delta is 50. That's so like half as much. So no wonder people respond to like, the anxious avoidant dynamics as something that can be very um, like moving mm. and feels very intense emotionally because the delta is bigger. But I often point out to people in my practice that a lot of their emotion is being informed by some form of deprivation. I like to give this example to people. Like, let's say you are now walking in the desert for three days without any water. And all of a sudden, I come to you and I give you a glass of water. You'll be like, oh my God, water, the most amazing thing in the world. It will taste amazing to you. But if you sit here now in my practice and I give you a glass of water, you'll be like, okay, thanks, a glass of water. <laughs> thanks, great. Yes. Uh, it's just water. But the experience of how amazing water is, is informed by deprivation. And that's not a good recipe for long-term satisfaction in relationship. Yeah, that's, that's really well said. And, and I want to make sure that this point is very clear because you talk about this a lot in Detached. If, if those that are listening or they know folks that are um, avoidant or anxious, your recipe in a sense is to try and find someone who's securely attached, right? Yes, I think it will make it much, much easier um, if you find someone who's uh, securely attached because then you have a built-in relationship coach that comes in with, the, with this person and they can help you and they can show you how to become more secure. Yeah. For sure. And maybe you can just expand on this a little bit, this idea that in fact, 
these different attachment styles can change. Like you could be insecure, but you have the ability to become secure with the right partner. Like these are all movable pieces. Exactly. And that's why I love this field so much and I find it so promising because you can really change your attachment styles. And people do in fact change their attachment styles. In fact, there's a study that came out a few years ago that showed that just by knowing about these different attachment styles, you can become more secure because all of a sudden you have a framework that potentially you didn't have before. So you know what to work towards. Otherwise, how would you know? And that was one of my aha moments when I read all this research before I wrote Attached was like the idea that not all people experience relationships in a similar way. That people, in fact, experience the same scenario very differently from a very different perspective. And that helped me tremendously because I think for people who are anxious, it helps them understand, you know, I take all the, a lot of these things personally, but this person, they just need more distance. Mm. And it doesn't mean that they don't love me as much and it doesn't mean that they don't want me as much, but it just means that they want more distance. And so how do we find a way that they can have their distance, but I can feel safe? That's the most important thing. That's yeah. what I help people figure out in therapy, couples therapy, individual therapy. And for avoidance, it's more like, I, you need your distance. Okay, but you need to understand that they view relationships differently. So how do you provide them with the safety so you can get your distance? Because the most important thing to understand about attachment and relationships, that when relationships work really well, we don't think about them a lot. The person... It's, it's almost like are in the background. It's like in the uh, strange situation test. We're going back to that strange situation test. When the relationship is secure, the child doesn't look at his mom all the time or cling to his or her, uh, uh, to, to their mom all the time. They're there exploring the different toys uh, that they have there on the floor. Yeah. So as adults, we don't play with toys anymore. But if we feel secure, we don't think about our partner all the time. We think about how are we going to create, what hobbies we're going to have, friendships, uh, parenting, work, um, art, uh, we get to expand our horizons. And that's the, the, real, croc, the, the real thing about attachment. It really gives us the, the wins, the, the, the freedom to become more independent by finding the right person to depend on. It's been so wonderful to be joined by Amir Levine, psychiatrist and neuroscientist at Columbia University, and with co-author Rachel Heller wrote Attached, the new science of adult attachment and how it can help you find and keep love. Amir, thank you so much for the time today. Really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it a lot. That's all the time we have for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can find us on Facebook by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Jonathan W. Bastion. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you again soon. Take care. This is KCRW.